0: Jacomis, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Amir England. Amir is a scientist at the Institute of Psychiatry, Psychology, and Neuroscience at King's College London. He's been there for a number of years. He is a cannabinoid psychopharmacologist, meaning he studies how cannabinoids like THC or CBD or other cannabinoid compounds actually influence the human brain. So he works in human subjects. He does different kinds of experiments that involve administering cannabis or cannabinoids to humans in controlled settings and studying the effects. He is interested in cannabis generally, as well as the psychopharmacology of specific cannabinoids, THC, CBD, THCV, how some of these cannabinoids might interact with each other to cause different effects when they're given in combination rather than individually, and the influence of medicinal cannabis. He has done a variety of experiments that are really interesting with regards to cannabinoid biology, and we talked about a lot of his research. We got into what the addictive potential of cannabis and THC in particular actually is. We got into whether or not THC, CBD, and other cannabinoids can have interactive effects and influence what you actually experience or what the physiological effects of these cannabinoids are when they're given in combination compared to when they're given individually. We talked about some unpublished research he's done looking at different THC-CBD ratios and how this influences cognition in human subjects. And more generally, we just talked about the cognitive effects of cannabinoids. How do they affect things like working memory, uh, the ability to recall things, the ability to use executive function? So if you're interested in cannabinoids and how they affect the human brain in particular, especially how they affect aspects of cognition like memory and executive function. This will be an interesting episode for you. As always, if you enjoy the content I'm producing on Mind and Matter, please like, share, and subscribe wherever you're listening or watching. Some of the best ways you can help support the podcast are to become a subscriber on Substack at mindandmatter.substack.com, to subscribe on YouTube if you're a video listener of the podcast, and also just to give a five-star rating to the audio version of the podcast on Apple or Spotify or wherever it is that you're listening in. And as always, thank you for your support. Today's show is brought to you in part by Dosist, an all-natural canvas company specializing in dose-controlled canvas products made with plant-based ingredients. To learn more about Dosist, their products, and where they are available, please visit their website through the link in the episode description. Here's my conversation with Dr. Amir England.
1: So, my name is Amir England, and I'm currently in London, and I live here since 2006. And for about 10 years, I've been working at the Institute of Psycho Psychiatry. Psych- psychology and neuroscience belongs to king's college london and my basic scientific background is i've got a degree in psychology and then a phd in psychopharmacology specifically cannabinoid psychopharmacology
0: and what uh what actually originally drew you to cannabinoid psychopharmacology
1: so um i think it's a bit of a funny story because um I'm Swedish. I grew up in Sweden, and I don't think many people know that Sweden has uh, some of the most restrictive drug laws around. So basically what you learned about drugs in sort of middle school was that if you tried an illegal drug, you would potentially die the first time you tried it or you became a heroin addict. And then that kind of mindset and poor education Kept going throughout adulthood with newspaper articles being very poorly nuanced and you learning very few facts about drugs, illegal drugs specifically. Um, and I, I think I always had a bit of a scientific inclination. I was always drawn to TV shows like Penn and Tellers, Bullshit, and Mythbusters, love those shows. So when I studied psychology, um at the university of westminster in london the the scientific method really drew me in uh and i got really hooked on that and reading articles um when no one really did like that i really loved it um but then particularly when we started learning about the topic being psychobiology so you know the brain uh, neurotransmitters receptors but also how drugs and medicines influence these, I started reading about different illegal drugs, particularly cannabis, and was quite shocked at how different that was to what I was taught back home in Sweden. So that made it so much more interesting to to, dive into this literature when I had this sense of betrayal my home country that i've been kind of let down that i've not been taught you know the truth really so we always were given a poorly nuanced view of uh of illegal drugs and cannabis and then i think particularly why cannabis drew me in was because of the endocannabinoid system so that that we have this endogenous system of neurotransmitters enzymes uh receptors and you know that we have the endocannabinoid so bodies produces its own cannabis compounds i found to be really fascinating and reading about potential therapeutic um targets within this system um that was really what got me
0: and so what uh you know when you think about Everything that you know today from being a professional scientist who studies this stuff compared to what you were taught when you were growing up in Sweden, what are the facts and myths when it comes to something like addiction and cannabis? How how addictive is THC? Is it addictive at all? You hear, uh, you know, you can go on the internet and find the full spectrum of opinions out there and there's a lot of motivated reasoning. So what's your understanding of the addictive potential of cannabinoids?
1: So, cannabis is definitely addictive. And, you know, what what do we mean by that? Uh, We have something called um, cannabis use disorder, uh, according to the latest DSM criteria. So, if you fill at least two of these in the last 12 months, some of these symptoms might be, you know, very strong craving, um, that you're giving up chores and duties that you have in your everyday life because of cannabis. You engage in risky behaviors because of cannabis. You neglect family and friends because of cannabis. Um, And you feel that cannabis is taking a bigger and bigger part of your life more than you want to. So you failed attempts at controlling or cutting down. Um, But also some physical signs of addiction we have, which is tolerance, meaning that You know, the the more you use of it, the stronger varieties, the the higher the dose that you'll subsequently need to feel the same effect. So that's a physiological um, sign of dependence. And the other physiological ones is that people who stop using cannabis experience withdrawal symptoms, problem sleeping, agitation, upset stomach, uh, headache, uh, sweating, some of these are, you know, physical signs of addiction. So some of some of the myths that I've heard about cannabis addiction, I guess, relates to oh, it's just psychologically addictive, not physically addictive. So that that's not quite true, and also that has very little relevance, I think, whether or not it's psychological or physical dependence, because. Compared to other drugs, let's say alcohol, heroin, tobacco, cannabis is less addictive. So fewer people who try the cannabis will develop what's called cannabis use disorder compared to the other drugs. However, um, cannabis is one of the most difficult drugs to stop using once one's become addicted. And that, that's a complicated story in and of itself so it's it's less addictive than, than most other drugs. It's definitely still addictive. Um, I think on average, it's about uh nine or ten percent become addicted,
0: and uh, there was and, a recent that- how, how would that compare to another drug? So if it's nine or ten percent for cannabis, what do we see for something like cocaine or alcohol or or another addictive substance
1: so I think. Cocaine and heroin would be in, in the 30s, and the upper 30s. Tobacco, nicotine would be in the 60s. I think alcohol is between 15 to 20. So that's kind of life lifetime uh, risk. More recent studies have found that um, the risk can be up to 30% for people who use cannabis, but that that's after one has used up to 20 years. So, uh, methodology is slightly different. And some of the risk factors for addiction is starting young, uh, having you know family history of addiction, and using stronger varieties of the uh, cannabis more often.
0: I see. And so, you know when it comes to when it comes to thinking about how addiction starts, you said, you know, uh, the age that you start at, you know, where where at where you're at in development matters. Earlier means more likely to develop a habit. Um, the dose also presumably matters. Is that a factor with with drugs in general, but THC in particular?
1: Yeah, I would, I would say so. And and mentioning the the early onset aspect, now that's obviously an association. We can't draw on causal inference. It might be. That you know, if if you have a troubled childhood, if you're hanging out with the wrong type of friends, and they're more risk-taking and um, and sensation-seeking, that that might lead you to start using cannabis earlier, and therefore also be a high likelihood of becoming addicted.
0: And I want to discuss for people. Um, THC's psychoactive effects. So can you start discussing for us, what is the constellation or what are the different components of psychoactivity, the psychoactive effects that THC in particular has? And I want to start to tie that to the CB1 receptor for people. So how much of this comes back to CB1 receptor and which parts of the psychoactive uh, effects that THC can have are tied to that receptor versus something else?
1: Well, I, I would say that um, the, the CB1 receptor is crucial for the intoxicating effects of THC. Um, there, there have been studies where you administer THC uh, alongside the CB1 receptor antagonist and you reduce the psychoactive effects, so the intoxicating effects. Um, and, I mean, there's a, there's a plethora of effects um, that we attribute to CB1 activation through, um, you know, THC, but also other agonists that bind to the receptor. So, I mean, it's so broad. It, it's, it, it changes people's perception, you know, in most aspects, touch, uh, hearing, uh, smelling, seeing, um and it can it can change it to various degrees as well. So you have obviously the, the enhancement of these stimuli. So people who use cannabis often report enjoying music more, enjoying food more, smells more, enjoying being out in nature more. But then um, and this is something that we see sometimes in the lab when we run experiments giving healthy volunteers THC, is that you can keep pushing that change of perception to, to the point where you start perceiving things that actually aren't there. And we start veering into the area of hallucinations, actually. Um, THC can make you change the way your mind works in terms of how you organize your thoughts and how your cognition works, you know, how, how well you remember things and, and organize thoughts in your head. Another aspect that we see um, is similar to thought disorder that we have in people who have schizophrenia. So you your, your thoughts become muddled and um, you, you sort of thoughts go in tangent. So you start think about your, your bicycle, and then you need to pump it, pump the tires full of air. Air comes from the outside. Outside there are birds. You know, birds fly in the sky, in the sky there are planes. And, and these thoughts can can bounce off each other at what feels like 100 miles an hour. It can be quite distressing to people. But similarly, you can also have the, the creativeness of, of THC. So THC can maybe take you outside of the bubble, which is your mind, and make you think of things in different perspectives. So these things happen on a spectrum where, on one end, they can be quite pleasant new, or neutral. They can be you know, positive to the person. They They feel they gain a benefit from it, while, on the other hand, it might become overpowering, overwhelming, anxiety, and paranoia-provoking.
0: So one of the things I want to discuss also is when it comes to changes in memory – when you have memory impairment or just altered cognition as it relates to recalling and remembering things, there's the acute effects. So the way THC is affecting you while you're intoxicated with it. And then there are potential chronic effects. So if you are consuming THC over long periods of time, can you have changes or impairments to memory that persist um, even in the absence of being intoxicated with THC in the moment? So can you kind of, Compare and contrast the effects on memory of acute acute intoxication versus any lasting effects that might come from long term chronic use.
1: Yeah, um, so acutely, while intoxicated, you impair most domains of cognition. The, a few uh, domains are less affected. One that's less affected is executive functions, so like problem solving. Um, so, and, and all, obviously motor coordination and things relating to driving. So that's always one good thing to remember is that, you know, don't drive after using cannabis. Uh, there was actually a very interesting study that studied participants after they've used cannabis and they, they said they felt fine two hours later, but objectively it actually took them five hours to feel fine objectively in terms of their driving performance. Um, In terms of long-term impairments, we see sort of a similar pattern when we compare non-users to regular cannabis users. Cannabis users do worse uh, comparatively as a group. Obviously we don't know if it's because they're, you know, have some underlying susceptibility towards poor cognition that also makes them susceptible to trying cannabis. So we don't know the causal association. We just know that as a group, they perform worse. Um, But there's been a meta-analysis that looked at frequency of use and level of impairment. And what that found is that people who use four times or less a month, so on average once a week, they do not show any difference to non-using counterparts there seems to be uh, a cutoff somewhere there. So if you go above that threshold, I think it was between five and 21 times a month, then you start showing significant uh, difference uh, compared to um, non-using counterparts. So, and then there's been some studies looking at how, whether or not these uh, cognitive impairments persist or not and for how long, and uh, it's quite old now meta-analysis I think from 2012 found that once people stop using cannabis uh, after about four weeks you could not distinguish cannabis users and non-users anymore obviously you know it depends on the quality of data and the amount of data but at the moment that's kind of where we're where we're at so we think that more, most likely people regain their cognitive abilities if they stop using cannabis or significantly reduce to about uh, one to- once a week or less
0: mm-hmm. then- so you know so studying this stuff in humans can be difficult because it's hard to tease apart cause and effect when you're when you're talking about observational studies but you're saying as a group people who consume cannabis especially those that consume it frequently tend to perform more poorly on memory and cognitive tasks, the non-users, but there does seem to be some kind of frequency or dose dependence here. The, the amount you're consuming really matters. So if, roughly speaking, when you look at people consuming once a week or less, you don't really see any differences in cognitive or memory performance compared to non-users.
1: That's right. Yes. Okay. And then there, there's another aspect, and this is kind of the the jury still out, comes from um, iconic study in New Zealand called the Dunedin study where they followed up um, study volunteers from birth. And I think they're up to above 45 years of age now.
0: Hmm.
1: So the same people have been followed up and this created a bit of controversy when the, the first paper came out, I think it was 2012, which suggested that cannabis use was related to Or IQ, you know, connected to the old adage of cannabis making you dumb, really. So this really uh, affirmed a lot of people's pre-existing beliefs and therefore was very popular. But what the study actually found is that over um, a 20-year period, so from the age of 18 to 38, cannabis use or specifically cannabis addiction was measured five times. And if you tested um, to be, you know, cannabis addicted or three out of those five times, at least, then you were in the group that had a six point drop in IQ compared to what you were uh, as a, as a teenager. So they, they further divided that group into those who use cannabis before the age of 18 and after eight, 18. Those who started after the age of 18, they had no different um, IQ performance. While well, those started before the age of 18 had an eight-point drop compared to their teenage uh, performance.
0: Hmm. And is that difference big? Would an eight-point difference be considered a large difference?
1: I mean, yeah, it, it would be notable. Uh, and I think that there were also questionnaires answered where they would say that you know they would struggle in everyday life due to slight impaired cognition. I mean, it, it's not to the level of what we call learning disability, but, but it's slightly below average. So we would take you from average to below average. Um, but the, the study was somewhat criticized for not taking other aspects uh, into account. And there were a couple more studies that followed up looking at genetic liability and other risk factors like drug use and poor, um, you know, poor upbringing and found that when you controlled for those factors, the association disappeared. So at the moment, uh, the jury is still out whether or not long-term cannabis use affects IQ. And if it does, you You most likely need to be addicted to cannabis for up to twenty years, and specifically in that study, the subset of people had stopped using cannabis one year before the final testing points and found that in spite of stopping a year earlier their uh, their iq had not improved so but that's still that's a single study and to actually know whether or not that holds true, we still need more studies to confirm those findings.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, is there anything in terms of animal research that might get at that? Have people tried, you know, giving THC to mice or rodents chronically at earlier versus later ages and seen something akin to what you were just describing? Um I must confess that I'm
1: not so versed on the the animal literature, but um, I think what we do see generally in the animal literature is kind of confirming what we've seen in humans, really. Um, But I can't really point to any specific studies Mm -hmm.
0: now. I mean, one thing that definitely seems true is that there's going to be age-dependent effects. Um, The one thing that I know from the animal literature is You know, there's been some studies um, done in the last few years where they basically show that you can get different or even the opposite effects in old versus young mice. Basically, in young mice, juvenile mice, um, THC is going to impair cognition. But actually, in older mice, it seemed to improve it in some ways. So there are, there does appear to be something interesting going on developmentally. Um, But, you know, one of the issues I think you were getting at in terms of how difficult it is to tease apart all of these. Different variables that can correlate with things like cannabis use is that um, you know it's it's hard to pull those things apart in human studies. Um, another area where that difficulty uh, makes it hard to interpret some of the data that's out there is psychosis. So, can you talk a little bit about THC's? psychotomimetic effects acutely? And what exactly does that mean? Let's describe that for people to start mm-hmm. off with, and then we'll maybe discuss what we know or what the controversy has been around, you know, whether or not psychosis becomes more likely in response to chronic THC consumption.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, and I mean, this is, this is really um, where my main focus of research lies. You know, it's experimental psychopharmacology. And what we do see is that, and it varies by dose, uh, between 25 to 50% of healthy volunteers that get a big enough dose of THC will start showing signs of quite mild and brief psychotic-like experiences. So psychotic-like experiences can be um, things like hearing voices, uh, delusions, believing things that that aren't true, um, being paranoid, so thinking that someone's out to get you, to harm you, that there's some uncontrolled force out to get you. Um, grandiosity, you know, believing, having an inflated sense of self and belief about your abilities that doesn't match up to reality. And what we mentioned before, thought disorder. So uh, we call it conceptual disorganization, as well as hostility. So in the lab, we've, we see this quite frequently in healthy volunteers. So we, we test them before THC and after. And the, the symptoms that we observe are very mild, and they're often very fleeting. So one participant, for instance, uh, he was sat at the laptop and was doing some cognitive tasks and the, the hospital fan was going um, you know, above his head. But during the intoxication. The, the sound of the fan had morphed into a group of women that were talking about him, for instance, and that lasted for, uh, for a few seconds. But for those few seconds, he truly felt and believed it. He was convinced of that. And then that slowly faded and he started hearing the fan again. He stopped believing it. But for that short moment, what he experienced was psychotic-like. So in in a patient with schizophrenia, they would likely hear voices on and off quite frequently. It it varies. Some, Some people experience voices occasionally. Some hear voices nonstop. So something like that, that's an auditory hallucination. Then we had another participant. Similarly, they were doing cognitive tasks. But this time, uh, one of my researchers was, you know, uh, just texting while someone, uh, while the participant was doing the laptop task. And the participant became convinced that she'd been filmed by his phone. And stopped the task and said, "Did you film me?" And he said, "No." And th- this belief persisted uh, until he actually showed her uh, his phone and showed that there were no videos of her doing the task. So, short period of time, convinced that she was being, you know, filmed during the cognitive task, and that sort of had a malicious intent as well. There was another participant that for a brief moment saw our faces morph into dog-like faces. Lasted for about three, four minutes, and and then that was gone. So that would be an example of a visual hallucination. So we get all sorts. And I think the, the most frequent one and the most common one is thought disorder. You really can't keep a track of your thoughts and your thoughts are going all over the place. It makes it sometimes quite distressing um, because you feel that you, you lack control over your mind and you have difficulty organizing your thoughts. So those are the, some of the acute psychotic light effects, and they're nowhere near what people with schizophrenia experience, but it's the same kind of type and quality. We call it phenomenology of symptoms.
0: I see. So so in scientific speak, in a paper or a study where you read this about this stuff, when you talk about the acute psychotomimetic effects of THC, it's what you just described. It, it, it's certain symptoms that some people display at a particular dose of THC intoxication that are similar to some of the symptoms that say someone with schizophrenia would experience, but they're typically more mild. They're less uh, intense in their expression and they are more fleeting. They don't last as long as someone with with true psychosis.
1: Yeah. So the the intensity of those symptoms obviously varies from person to person. Some people are really sensitive towards THC and can have really distressing uh, experiences. But what tends to hold true, at least in these experimental studies, is that all of the symptoms subside once the drug uh, stops having an effect. So mm. with three, four hours, all the symptoms gone.
0: And what was, can you repeat the statistic that you started out with? I think you said something like 25 to 50% of people will have some kind of psych- psychotomimetic symptoms at a high enough dose. So what was that stat again? And, and what kind of doses are we talking about?
1: Yeah. So this is, this is looking uh, mainly at similar studies where healthy volunteers have been given doses of THC in a research setting. So the, the rate of psychosis um, when given a high enough dose is about 25 to 50%. So I think the dose of inhaled um, THC would be about 10 milligrams. And then the highest dose, I think, that has been given intravenously has been about five to seven milligrams.
0: Okay. So these are, these are what we might call normal dose ranges. These are not astronomical doses. There's some, they're, they're in the range of what someone would experience if they're consuming a legal cannabis product they might they might buy somewhere.
1: Yeah, definitely. But I think what, what puts our participants uh, aside to the, the part, you know, recreational cannabis users is that we, we tend to select users that have very low baseline of cannabis use,
0: mm. uh,
1: very infrequent, because we kind of want to maximize the effect that THC has on them to you know, study these effects more closely. But also, you know, for practical reasons, because when you do these studies, you always ask participants to provide a urine sample on the day of the experiment to show that there's nothing else on board so that the the thing that we're actually measuring is the the compounds that we give the participant on that day. So just bear that in mind that these are very um, novice users, I would say, infrequent,
0: yeah, so their tolerance is going to be low. so if if you're you know, if you're citing a study like what you just described, or you've got novice consumers, who have very low tolerance, if you're giving them, say, 10 milligrams of THC, the results you're seeing then would be expected to be more akin to what uh, a, a more frequent consumer would get at a higher dose.
1: Correct, yeah. And and studies have looked at this specifically. So they've compared the same doses of, let's say, intravenous THC in infrequent users and um, frequent users, and they see much less pronounced psychosomimetic effects in those frequent users. And similarly, when you look at their cognitive performance during the intoxication, you see that as previous research has also found, um, cognitive impairments, there are a baseline for the cannabis users. But then when you give them a bit of cannabis, it, it balances out. So it, it it improves their performance slightly. That might be because they're, you know, at early stages of withdrawal or they've not had THC for a while because the researchers asked them to stay away from it ahead of the experiment. But um, th- they tend to show very little cognitive impairment when when being administered THC in these studies.
0: Hmm. And so when someone is frequently consuming THC, they are going to develop some level of tolerance to it. So they will need a higher dose to achieve the same effects. But how uniform is that adaptation? Is that tolerance? Are there some things that, uh, that the person will adapt to, but other things that they won't? In other words, you know, if someone is consuming uh, frequently over an extended period of time, do some of the effects uh, tend to go down in magnitude and others remain elevated or remain there? How much you know? How much? How much is tolerance being tuned to different subcomponents of the experience that you get to THC?
1: I think it's a really difficult um, question to answer, and it's a really good one. I think I think it's probably an area where we need more research to understand. You know how over time uh, the the intoxication effect changes with increased development of tolerance. Um, I think, um, most aspects of the intoxication will, you know, follow the, the trajectory of, of tolerance. So, you know, the, the pleasurable effects, you know, the effects on, on food and, um, on sleep. And I think, and this is now anecdotal, but I've heard the positive effects can just stop all of a sudden as well. so there was a musician um that I met at an at an event he'd been using cannabis to help him write music, and he said it worked for years, but then all of a sudden stopped. Obviously, it's impossible to say whether or not cannabis was related to any of that or some other aspect um of his life changed so made it so that he didn't benefit from cannabis anymore but yeah i think that's an area where we where we know very little still but overall generally most effects of cannabis are going to be blunted by a f- frequent regular use and the stronger the product the more quicker you'll develop tolerance
0: and another way that some of the effects of THC can be blunted are co-administration or pre-administration of CBD? Can you start to talk about CBD a little bit? How, do, how does it how is it distinguished from THC pharmacologically? And how does that start to tie into the way it modulates the effects of THC?
1: Mm. So what um, what we know about CBD is that it's what we call a promiscuous drug. So it binds to many, many different receptors and has many physiological functions on the cell and receptor level. Um, importantly, it doesn't bind to the CB1 the CB2 receptor directly at any relevant concentration. And that's why even at really high doses, you don't really tend to see any intoxicating effects. So that's at least one thing that CBD doesn't intoxicate you and impair your cognition is what generally is found. Um, in terms of its pharmacology and how we think it might uh, combat or kind of compete with THC is that um, it has a whole host of indirect CB1 effects. So it's what we call an L- negative allosteric modulator of the CB1 receptor. So, it binds somewhere else, but then has a, a sort of an antagonistic effect on the CB1 receptor and towards other agonists. It might uh, bind to, it might inhibit the breakdown of endogenous cannabinoids by preventing the um, the enzyme that breaks it down, known as FA, and also prevent the reuptake of endocannabinoids. So you've got more endocannabinoids out in the synaptic cleft competing for the receptor um, when THC is trying to bind to it. And then there are a whole host of other pharmacological targets that are still quite poorly understood that might also moderate the effects uh, of THC. So, I mean, I can give you a couple of examples. So we... The kind of cannabis um, studies that started at King's were about 15 years ago. The first study we gave healthy volunteers intravenous THC, two and a half milligrams, which I don't know what you would call an average joint, but I would probably say that it's one and a half of those. So it's a fair amount. And um, participants experienced cognitive impairment and, um, psychotic-like symptoms in that study. And then um, we did a subsequent study, a very small one, pilot study with uh, pre-administration of five milligrams of intravenous TH- uh, sorry, CBD, the five milligram CBD, and then one and a quarter milligrams of THC. And in that small study of six people, we saw that the, the psychotic-like effects were reduced so that kind of gave us some um, some preliminary data to go look at this properly. So we, we managed to get funding for a study where we gave 48 healthy volunteers either 600 milligrams of oral CBD or placebo before they had uh, one and a half milligrams of THC. Now, in this study, we saw similar effects on cognition. So there was an impairment to what we call delayed verbal recall. So participants learned the list of 12 words and 20 minutes later, they were asked to remember as many words as they could. Um, And they were also asked specific questions about paranoid thoughts. And we did the standard psychosis interview, um, the scale that we always use. Now, THC... Had predictable effects, so increased psychotic like effects, increased paranoia, and cognitive impairment. But we saw um, the people who also had CBD that there was significant reduction, specifically in paranoia. Mm-hmm. So there was no paranoia in the CBD group compared to their baseline. Uh, in terms of psychotic like effects, that happened to 14 percent in the CBD group and 41% in the, uh, THC only group. Uh, and lastly, the, the delayed verbal recall. So people tend to perform, perform, uh, tend to remember one word less on average on this list. Um, but if you also have the CBD, THC did not reduce your performance. So in that study, we we found that CBD potentially could protect against some of these acute negative effects of THC.
0: And I think you said you used 600 milligrams of oral CBD. So so people are swallowing hundreds of milligrams of CBD, and yeah. then they are getting the THC. In the original pilot study, you used five milligrams of intravenously delivered CBD. How do you... Uh, what, what's what's the reason for the difference in dosing there?
1: So, I mean, funnily enough, the the difference um, why we went for uh, oral CBD was a practical one. We just couldn't find a supplier for intravenous CBD anymore. And, you know, we, we have the choice of, all right, we'll go with capsules because that's more readily available, easy to find. And or we just delay the study and potentially run out of funding. So that's really the reason why we went for oral CBD. But at least, you know, we found the significant effect in that study and that kind of led us on to our most recent study, um, which still not published, but, um, you know, is well, well on its way to be. Uh, In this study, we wanted to see if there's a particular THC and CBD ratio that's associated with, um, you know, less of these negative effects. So we were hoping to kind of replicate the finding and find a ratio of CBD to THC that would be the best. So we had this time 46 healthy volunteers, but this time every volunteer came for four experiments each. So in a way, it was almost four times the size of the study. So the, the power is much improved. And we gave healthy volunteers 10 milligrams of inhaled THC delivered through a volcano vaporizer. They got 10 milligrams of THC on each visit alongside of no CBD 10 milligrams of CBD, 20 milligrams, and 30 milligrams. So it's uh, zero to one, one to one, two to one, and three to one.
0: And, and was all that inhaled through the volcano?
1: <laughs> all inhaled all at once. Because that's, that's uh, some of the criticism of the previous study is that it's not really naturalistic that someone would mm-hmm. swallow a huge dose of CBD four hours before ha- having a joint. Right, right. So, um, if there were a safer variety of cannabis, then, you know, it would be consumed at the same time, really. Um, But what's to note is that we kept the THC level the same, which is not really lifelike. Because if you have a cannabis variety with three times the CBD amount, that, you know, the plant cannot produce the same amount of THC. So, it will have to sacrifice... THC levels. So I guess this is a study where if you were to match the THC amount with different CBD THC varieties, are there any benefits of choosing a high CBD variety? So it was double blind. It was randomized. So participants didn't know what ratio they had on which day. There was a minimum of one week in between experiments. And everyone who showed up for an experiment uh, gave a negative urine drug screen beforehand. Everyone was uh, fairly infrequent cannabis users. Uh, Less than once a week on average, they use cannabis. Uh, I think the average was actually about eight or nine times a year among the whole group. So very low level use. And, again, we saw the same kinds of THC effects. We saw uh, impaired cognition, you know, both immediate and delayed recall. We saw um, psychotic-like effects. We had a couple of extra kind of self-rated psychotic uh, scales, and those also increased. Uh, In the study, we also measured pleasurability because we were interested in, you know, if we find the cbd THC ratio that's less harmful, is that then gonna be less pleasurable? What's that gonna to do to the positive effect? So we we had participants listen to a song that they pre-selected on each experiment, you know, a song that they enjoy. Uh, we gave them a piece of chocolate to taste while they were intoxicated that they'd also tried uh, when they were sober. And we had them rate, you know all sorts of uh, intoxication-related questions, so like, "How high do you feel? Do you feel stoned? Drug, are the drug effects pleasurable? Uh, do you feel anxious? Do you feel paranoid? So we were quite hopeful, because running the experiments, we're also blind. And for each participant, every time there's a different effects. And when you see a different effect, in the participants in the lab, you think that oh well, you know, it must be the CBD that's co- driving the difference within this participant. So if they have a unpleasant experience on their first e- experiment and they have a great experience on the second one, we as researchers would think that's down to CBD. So that's kind of what we thought when we finished the study, but then we unblind. We, we analyze the data, and there's no difference anywhere whatsoever to be found. So all, all the CBD-THC ratios are the same in terms of what they do to cognition, what they do to the subjective effects, the intoxication, the pleasurability of chocolate, the pleasurability of music, psychotic-like effects. All these effects are the same or e- even the highest ratio 3
0: to 1. I see. So you tried 1 to 1, 2 to 1, 3 to 1 and you saw no difference. So increasing the CBD to THC ratio didn't lead to fewer bouts of paranoia. It didn't it didn't get rid of any cognitive impairment they were getting from the THC. It it seemed to have no effect.
1: No. So uh, the the only effect that we actually managed to see was that the more CBD there was in the cannabis, the longer the participant needed to inhale all of it, and the more that they coughed. Hmm. That was was the only effect that we saw of CBD. And we did have the THC only uh, as a comparison to this. So what we take with from this is that You know, to to modify the negative effects, it's not going to be feasible to to keep putting in more CBD, I think, because the the level of coughing that we got from the three to one ratio. So, you know, I think to to reach the the CBD levels that we uh, got from giving people 600 milligrams orally, you would probably need to go to, you know, 12 or 20 to one. And I I think that would be way too abrasive for a participant to be able to inhale that.
0: Yeah. And so, I mean, when you think about those ratios in the context of the different cannabis products that are out there, right? (laughs) If you're talking about flower, actual plant material, there are no plants that naturally produce that high of a ratio of CBD to THC. You know, you can get up to the two to one and maybe even three to one range, but you you don't have any plants that are doing 10 to one or 20 to one or 30 to one. You could make constant- Go ahead.
1: There there, there are some, I think, that have, um, uh, I've seen 18, 20% CBD with, you know, 0.5. So that would be... Yeah, but at at that
0: point, the THC is so low that... that, Yeah, you're you're not going to reach... Yeah. Yeah. So, but you're saying basically the, the one effect you did see is that as you added more CBD, the vapor got more harsh. It took longer to inhale all of it and people coughed more.
1: That's right. And also we, we measured both compounds of CBD and THC in blood and we saw a perfect dose response. So we saw, um, you know, one-to-one had significantly more CBD in the blood compared to THC alone. Two-to-one had more than one-to-one and three-to-one had more than two-to-one. So it was like a perfect dose response curve in blood but there was no difference in how much THC was absorbed. So there was no, what we call pharmacokinetic effect where, you know, the CBD is pushing out uh, THC from the blood. So all participants got the same amount of, uh, well, the all the four groups had the same amount of THC.
0: Mm-hmm. So, okay, so that's interesting. So, you know, in the realm of, You know, what ratios of CBD to THC you need for CBD to modulate some of THC's effects, to decrease some of the negative side effects that one might experience. You know, we know that 600 milligrams of oral given before a regular ish dose of THC does something. You just described experiments where, you know, one to one, two to one, three to one ratios of inhaled CBD and THC don't seem to do anything. In terms of products that are actually out there, the The only one I've seen that gets anywhere close to this ratio is um, some gummies that just came out recently, and they've got 200 milligrams of CBD and four milligrams of THC in each gummy. Do we have any data on that kind of ratio? Would you expect that to have some kind of effect, or do we, do we just not know right now?
1: I don't think we can say that we know yet. Uh, I'm afraid. So we need to, firstly, we need to replicate the findings of our previous study, the one with 600 milligrams oral CBD. Uh, it it could just be, you know, serendipity that we, we hadn't powered the study enough because, you know, random chance put more tolerant people in our CBD group. Maybe that's why we saw a CBD effect. Um, and, and I think, We trust the results of the latest study a bit more because it was every participant did all four ratios, and it Mm was almost four times the the powered study. Um, But there still might be something to high dose oral CBD. We're currently running a study in patients with schizophrenia who use uh, cannabis regularly. And they're getting THC on two occasions, once with a thousand milligrams of oral CBD before THC and the other one placebo. So we're still looking into it. And uh, there might also be some metabolic effects that you get from oral um, route of administration that you wouldn't get from inhaled. So if you take a drug orally, often you get what's called first pass metabolism. So much of the compound's broken down in the liver, and some uh, metabolites are produced. Now we think that one of CBD's uh, metabolites, seven-hydroxy uh, CBD, has been found in some uh, preclinical studies to have um, some some uh, pharmacological activity. Whether or not it's be the mechanism that blocks THC effects, we still don't know yet. We studied um, 7-hydroxy in the the ratio study, but we found only very small uh, levels from inhale, which is kind of what you would expect. Um, so it might just be that either because you're getting a higher dose orally or because the oral route of administration means that you've got more of this potentially active metabolite that's helping to protect against THC
0: effects. Is a similar idea related to why people say that edibles that orally consume THC is more psychoactive, more potent and intoxicating than inhaled THC?
1: I mean, I think there's a potential for that because uh, we we know that uh, 11-hydroxy-THC which is one of the two main uh, metabolites of THC is strongly uh, intoxicating, binds well to the CB1 receptor. Um, I don't think any recent studies have really looked at how comparable they are. There were some studies from, I think, the 70s and 80s where they gave these uh, metabolites alongside THC, and back then they said that they they were slightly stronger but i think we need more controlled and and uh, better powered studies uh, to really confirm that 11 hydroxy is stronger but it's at least as strong i would say um based on what we know from previous study to thc so you're you're getting thc and you're getting higher levels of 11 hydroxy so that could be partially what explains why people experience different effects from orally consumed THC. But it it could also be that um, obviously people are not as good at dosing uh, when something's consumed orally, when it takes one to two hours sometime for the, for the effects to come on. And obviously I'm sure, you know, the, the old uh, mistake of, you know, taking a cannabis product orally and not feeling any effects for the first hour and then taking more. And then all of it comes at once. And it's a very bad experience.
0: What about some of the other cannabinoids that are out there? There are the so-called minor cannabinoids, which are usually present at very low levels in the cannabis plant have you looked at all at how some of these other minor cannabinoids are affecting the body physiologically, whether or not they have psychoactive effects or whether or not they might also modulate the effects of THC? So we,
1: we've we only done a small pilot study with 10 volunteers with uh, Delta-9 tetrahydrocannabivarin, THCV. Uh, at the time, I think we were the first researchers to study it for 40 years and the previous study had given it to seven people i think intravenously quite a high dose and found some minor intoxicating effects Uh, we didn't really see anything and it was in a study where we gave participants uh, daily doses for five days and then on the fifth day they also had thc THCV didn't produce any effects that the participants could notice uh, compared to placebo. And it really didn't do that much to any of the THC-related effects either. However, in that study, we reduced the dose of THC to one milligrams, and we didn't really see any psychotic-like effects, and there were only mild cognitive impairments. THCV seemed to block... The negative effect on delayed verbal recall. So the list of 12 words that you remember uh, 20 minutes later. Um, But again, because it was such a small study and only 10 people, we can't really be sure if that's a real effect or not. Mm -hmm. I've heard from colleagues in America that they've uh, run a study of higher doses of THCV that it can produce mild intoxicating effects. But um, this field of research is really, really new and there's very little we can say at this point.
0: I see. And so what do we know about its pharmacology? So you mentioned, you know, what we've mentioned so far is THC obviously activates the C B1 receptor. That's where many of its psychoactive effects come from. CBD is this thing called a negative allosteric modulator of the CB1 receptor. And it's also promiscuous, so it binds to other receptors. What do we know about something like THCV? What what receptors in the brain is it touching?
1: So um, and it's still up for debate, but I think but before some of these studies, and I think a lot of people are still saying that uh thcv is a um neutral antagonist so something that binds to the cb1 receptor but without really uh activating it so it just sits there and and kind of occupies that space potentially blocking uh thc effects but not like uh other compounds like inverse agonists like the antagonist Ramonaband, for instance, that bind to the receptor and reduce its baseline activity. Now, I don't know how much you know about remonobant. It was an uh, anti-obesity drug that was trialed, uh, quite effective in reducing body weight, but produced psychiatric side effects, so it was pulled from the market. So it doubled the risk of anxiety, depression, and suicidality. Um So that's why the kind of interest for THCV grew because you thought it was, it did a similar thing, but not as severely. It didn't reduce the baseline activity of the receptor. And I think maybe the truth is somewhere in between that it's a negative, uh, sorry, a neutral antagonist or a very weak partial agonist. Um. So, yeah, I, but but again, we've had so few studies of these, you know, uh, minor cannabinoids that we really, that's that's somewhere where I think there's going to be much more research done in the next coming years.
0: Mm-hmm. I think it's actually worth explaining the Ramonaban example for people. So the idea was, well, if THC gives you the munchies and it makes animals eat more, and it's inc- and it's doing that by activating the CB1 receptor, if we maybe find a drug that runs that receptor in the reverse direction and decreases uh, what's going on through that receptor, we can treat something like obesity. And what you're saying is it did in fact have the effect on feeding that we would expect, but it had all of these other side effects that led to it being pulled from the market.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think what we what we gained from the, the whole Ramona experience was how important the endocannabinoid system is to us so you can't just like block off the endocannabinoid system as as you would with these drugs although you know um people in these studies they lost about five kilograms a year and they they showed improvements in their lipids and, and blood sugar so it was it was good in that sense but then it was bad in the psychiatric sense and that kind of gives us a clue of the importance of the endocannabinoids to to functioning mental state. Um, And and similarly, what's important to consider is that once someone starts using cannabis really frequently, what you get is a down regulation of the endocannabinoid system. So the body, the brain will respond to all of this extra THC, all of this extra activity on the CB1 receptor, and adapt. So people who use frequently, they'll get fewer and fewer available CB1 receptors. And heavy users compared to non-users tend to have lower levels of circulating endocannabinoids. So because the body's noticing all of this extra cannabinoid activity, it's pulling back on its own. Mm. And that might be why we see a slight increased risk of depression and anxiety and psychotic-like disorders in really heavy long-term cannabis use. So, yeah, I think it, it gives us another angle, the whole um experience.
0: And, you know, when you think about cannabinoid-based therapies, you know, obviously the big one that's out there is uh, CBD, a high, very high CBD formulation is what's now used for epilepsy. So that's the drug Epidiolex and that's FDA approved and everything. Are you optimistic that we will see other cannabinoid based therapeutics make it to you know the level of FDA approval for other disease conditions? And if so, what do you think so, so, some of the top candidates are?
1: Um, yeah, uh, I, I do think that we'll, we'll most likely get um, new cannabinoid therapeutics. I think some candidates might be far inhibitors. So the, these are compounds that block the enzyme that breaks down the endocannabinoid and andamide. So taking these drugs means that you have less of this enzyme and then the body still retains more of uh, the endocannabinoids. Now, there, there might be some therapeutic potential there in terms of cannabis addiction. And cannabis addiction, uh, I didn't mention it before. I think one of the reasons where we've got such poor outcomes in terms of people, you know, getting rid of their addiction is that we don't have any pharmacotherapies for it yet, unlike we have for, for some other drugs like opioids and, and tobacco, like nicotine replacement. So, so far, I think that the best studies uh, show that low-dose THC can help with acute withdrawal while people are trying to quit. Um, other areas of interest, again, is within evictions, there's been one clinical trial here from the UK that found that CBD seems to work uh, in reducing how much cannabis people use while they're trying to quit. So, that's, that's an area of interest. And then Um, potentially one of the the most hopeful areas is in the area of schizophrenia. So there's been three published trials, uh, two in kind of acute or uh, let's say non-chronic schizophrenia. Both of those studies showed positive results compared to either an existing antipsychotic or a placebo where patients were taking the regular antipsychotics, and then taking CBD or placebo on top. So both of those studies showed the benefit of CBD on psychotic symptoms.
0: And well, how much CBD are we talking in those studies? So,
1: so those studies gave one 800 milligrams and the other 1,000 milligrams a day. And one study was six weeks long. That was 1,000 milligrams. And then the other one was four weeks. The third study was in treatment-resistant schizophrenia, so that's more chronic, and patients have tried many medications without significant symptom reduction. And 600 milligrams for four weeks did not um, differentiate from placebo in that study. So that might be an area where CBD doesn't really work. So I think that there are big uh, trials planned Uh, Here in the UK, I know big clinical trials are going to take place in the next coming years. So within five years, I think we'll know whether or not CBD uh, could potentially be a treatment for schizophrenia.
0: And what about these other minor cannabinoids? We talked a little bit about THCV. Is there much of anything going on in terms of studying them? Um, Do you think we'll see more research happen there? Or is the focus going to be mostly on CBD and THC stuff?
1: I think probably most research will be on THC and CBD. There has been some trials done that I've read on THCV. There was one um, where they compared THCV and CBD and the combination of the two in people with diabetes looking at various, uh, you know markers of uh, diabetes of blood sugars and lipids and so on. THCV seemed to have some significant improvements, um, but CBD did not. And the interesting thing is that when you put the two together, CBD negated the positive effects of THCV.
0: Hmm.
1: And, and that's something that, you know, you would have heard the entourage effect and, you know, whole plant versus single compound kind of debates, um, which, you know, Fair enough, there, there could be something to, you know, the entourage effect, but we, we need to remember that these compounds can also compete with each other. So they, they don't always add benefit. They can also, you know, knock out the benefit of the other compound potentially. So as pharmacologically, you always know of potential, uh, well, potentiation of effect by adding one compound to another, but there's also antagonism, you know, similar to remonobounds and THC.
0: Yeah, I think that's an important point. You don't hear that mentioned a lot that, yeah, there's there's always the possibility of some kind of synergy between two compounds, but they can also kind of like block or subtract out what the other one's doing.
1: Yeah. Well, the, those two mechanisms are most likely equally plausible.
0: Hmm. And so, like, you said you were doing the, um, I think you said you were doing one of the schizophrenia studies with CBD. What else is on the horizon for you? What are you working on right now?
1: Um, so, we're hoping to do a, a similar study in uh, patients with cannabis addiction without any other psychiatric history. So, again, trying to, you know, see if uh, a big oral dose of CBD can be protective against the acute effects of THC on memory and, you know, psychopathology. Um, We're quite interested in, um, it's quite a new phenomenon that's recently been discussed looking at uh, THC units or standardized THC units. Um, So similar to what we have with alcohol. So we have well, different countries have different standard units or standard drinks. That's something that we've really been lacking in the cannabis field. So what I'm kind of interested in now, and and on the back of the last study where we saw that added CBD did not make it less harmful, I want to kind of turn it around and go back on THC dose. So I want to scale back the dose of THC to see at what threshold do we start seeing these psychotic effects? At what threshold do we see the cognitive impairments? At what threshold do we see the positive effects and the intoxication? And at what dose can you tell no difference between uh, placebo? So I want to find out you know, where, where the sweet spot might lie for someone who's a very infrequent cannabis user and I think that will partly inform users you know that might not have any experience of cannabis of if if they want to start where they should start so if I take this amount of THC I know that most likely I won't have these scary psychotic-like effects if I'm a sensitive person so it'll give me a bit of an intoxication, a bit of a pleasurable effects, but at least I won't get that negative effect. So that's something I don't think we fully yet understand, like at what dose of THC do we see start seeing these negative effects? But that will then also inform this debate about what a standard THC unit should be. So currently it's been proposed... To be five milligrams of THC, regardless of it being inhaled or taken orally. Uh, and I think we just want to provide more data for that discussion. Um, because that kind of um, approach I think is really beneficial in the long term. Because I think for, for public health perspective, being able to tell people that, you know. This many units of THC per year is related to this much risk of negative outcome, and so on. So at least you're able to to inform users how harmful their use is, because the harms of most drugs do not appear all of a sudden. You know, alcohol is related to, I think, eight or nine different types of cancers, and it does so at a very low level of exposure, but people don't really know that. So I think for cannabis it'd be really useful if we push more towards these standardized THC units.
0: Well, Amir, um, you've shared a lot of interesting stuff with us. Is there anything you want to reiterate or any final thoughts you want to leave people with about the effects of THC or other cannabinoids generally?
1: Um, Yeah, so I think one thing and uh, I've heard from, from colleagues that it's more of a controversy in, in the States than it is in, in Europe is the, the link between cannabis use and schizophrenia, like developing a psychotic disorder. And, and speaking about psychosis is sometimes tricky with the terminology because you can have an acute drug-induced psychosis. You can get that from most drugs having over consumed it over a period of time where you have a brief psychotic episode. So you become psychotic and it's not the the type of psychotic experiences that we get in our lab. It's more the ones where it persists for quite some time, uh, usually for a couple of days until the drug has left the system. And that's quite, that's quite an important risk factor as well. So if you've ever experienced a psychosis while being intoxicated on cannabis. And that's been quite a bad psychosis that required treatment. Studies have found that about a quarter of those people will later develop a, a diagnosis of a psychotic illness. So that's that's you know very informative for those people because then at least they know that, all right, I'm particularly vulnerable. So if I carry on using, there's there's a risk that I might develop something more chronic. And then there's the the association between cannabis use and later development of schizophrenia. So this is based on epidemiology studies um, where people have been followed up through health registries or in follow-up studies and cross-sectional studies and found that Cannabis users have a higher likelihood of developing a psychotic illness at some point in their lives. I think meta-analyses have found that it's about a two to four-fold increased risk. Now, to put this into context, if you have a sibling that has schizophrenia, your risk increases tenfold. If your mum has diabetes when she's giving birth to you, you have an eight-fold increased risk. Um, if you live in a metropolitan area, your risk is doubled. If you are a migrant, and you have negative life experiences and trauma, the risk is tripled sometimes. Even having a cat increases your risk of schizophrenia, because they think uh, cats carry Toxoplasma gondii, which can lead to toxoplasmosis, and that's a risk factor for schizophrenia as well. So Mm. The way to think about cannabis and its relationship to schizophrenia is that it's one of a of many risk factors that interacts with the other risk factors to cause schizophrenia. So we don't we don't have an explanation of why people develop schizophrenia. There's no cause that we causal mechanism that we can point to. We only have these risk factors. Um, but we know that cannabis is one because it's been consistently found in study after study that the relationship is there in spite of controlling for various um, other compounds. but that that's not to mean that it's it's causing schizophrenia. It could just interact with the other risk factors. So I think the 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 pervasive um statement that's still circulating in the scientific literature is that cannabis use is a component cause that is neither sufficient nor necessary for the risk of schizophrenia so if you have no other risk factor then cannabis use is unlikely to ever lead to schizophrenia and you don't have to ever have used cannabis uh to develop schizophrenia. So a lot of people who develop schizophrenia have never touched cannabis. Mm-hmm. So I think these aspects, um, these nuances are important to think about when, when we think about the relationship of cannabis use and schizophrenia, like we'll, we'll probably never know if it's causing it or not, or if it's an epiphenomenon that just happens to happen among people who develop schizophrenia and would have, Always develop schizophrenia. Um, One way that I like to think about it is uh, similar to heart disease. So we don't know who's going to, you know, experience a heart attack, but we know risk factors. We know that if our parents had uh, a heart attack, it's greater likelihood that we'll have it. If we have poor diet, if, you know, we don't do enough exercise, if we, Drink a lot of alcohol and smoke tobacco increases our risk. So I guess the same thing applies for cannabis. You know, if, if you have a family history, if you've had a tough, you know, childhood, if you've experienced these negative psychotic-like experiences from using cannabis, it might be good to have an extra think before engaging in cannabis use.
0: Yeah because you know you, you know this has been controversial for a long time people often point to all the different mm-hmm. studies out there that show the correlation between cannabis use and the development of psychosis or schizophrenia but then other people will say yeah but there's all these other variables that correlate with both there could be genetic factors that predispose you to schizophrenia and to you know enjoying uh cannabis consumption i talked to one guy named Jonathan Schaefer and he did this twin study where they looked at a bunch of twins identical and fraternal twins so they had you know the 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 genetic component to that data set and they had enough of these twins that you know they had some reasonably uh, high number of them where you know one would develop a psychotic um uh, some form of psychosis one wouldn't one would have consumed cannabis and one would not have And they did not find that that association between cannabis and psychosis persisted after they controlled for all of the other factors they looked at. Um, Other studies have looked at these things, but I think in general, you're probably right. And it's not always the answer people want to hear, which is cannabis is definitely not necessary to develop schizophrenia because there's many examples of people who have it despite never having consumed cannabis, it probably does have some relationship to the development of psychosis. It probably in some individuals, at least with certain predispositions, interacts with other variables. And it's just extremely difficult to tease apart and understand precisely what's going on there.
1: Yeah. And there, there are some other findings that, that kind of nuance this picture further. Like We know that people with schizophrenia who have used cannabis have an earlier onset of the illness compared to those who've not used it. Mm. So the illness kicks in sooner. We know that patients who have schizophrenia that use cannabis, they tend to have better cognition. We don't fully understand why. It could be that, that they are a group of people that were already better cognitively and because they're cognitively more adept, they can, you know, engage in purchasing cannabis, which you know, for patients with schizophrenia, might be tricky. Otherwise, um, but we also know that patients who use cannabis uh, have particularly bad outcomes of their illness. So they tend to have more frequent relapses and a worse prognosis of their illness, and they're also less compliant with their antipsychotic medication. Mm and And other risk factors like the age of onset of cannabis use increases the psychosis risk. So if you started using cannabis earlier, the risk of developing psychotic illness is higher. So I think all of these different bits of information kind of help us to understand that okay, maybe it's only a risk for some people, but you know we know that. The frequency, the age that you begin to use, the strength of cannabis is also related to the risk of uh, of psychosis. So, we could be cautious at least and say that maybe it's causing it. And if it is causing, well, maybe we don't start using cannabis as early, we don't use it as frequently, we don't use as strong a product. And if you're particularly vulnerable because You have, you know, mental ill health in your family history, be a bit extra cautious. If you've had psychotic experiences while taking cannabis, be extra cautious. So we we can use all of these little bits of information to, to making a bit healthier choices relating to cannabis.
0: Yeah. One thing that's like a little bit unfortunate is how, you know, in the U.S. at least, where you've got many states now with legal cannabis, you know the, the basic pattern that you see everywhere is that the fixation you know and, and this comes from just looking at purchasing patterns and and the potency of products over time and what people are choosing to spend their money on you know people are just sort of fixated on getting as much THC as they can for the dollars that they're spending and it basically drives the producers to try and get more and more potent products you know whether it's getting plant material flower products with as high THC as possible whether it's creating new concentrates the general sort of vector that the industry is pointed on is is creating higher and higher potency products in terms of THC content and um you know i think that's sort of unfortunate because you know you you do get some of these more negative side effects at the higher potency levels and the higher doses and you know i think many people would say that you know the experience can be very very good and very lovely at a reasonably low dose of thc
1: yeah and i think what what's driving that is the the same uh effect that's driving you know sales of other drugs like alcohol uh, and who that is particularly you know marketed to uh for alcohol and for cannabis uh, something called the pareto principle applies the 80 20 so the Most of the cannabis in a given society, about 70 to 80%, I think it varies between countries, is consumed by a minority of cannabis users, the ones that are really heavy users that developed big tolerance. And because they've got a big tolerance, they need these strong products. These strong products are going going to be the most attractive ones to them because of the tolerance that they've built up. So I think... And also, if if the market is selling specifically to those users because they are, you know that's you know where the most of the profits lie because they're buying eighty percent of the product, then you're going to see this effect unless there there's some kind of regulation to step in to, to you know potentially tax uh, cannabis by. Uh, quantity of THC, Be- because correct me if I'm wrong. I think in the states, uh, the tax on cannabis is by weight. Is that right?
0: Yeah, it's either just uh, uh, it's either by weight or it's just uh, you know, a standard tax on any any product. But there's no yes. right, there's no progressive tax based on the potency or anything like that, as far as I'm aware right now.
1: Yeah, and I think from from alcohol research, they found that that does have an effect. Particularly for the really heavy user. So, uh, we have an ongoing project in, in Scotland that's been going for a few years where they have minimum unit pricing. So, for every unit of alcohol, the price goes up, leading to the really strong products, the really, you know, the products that contain a lot of units of alcohol become very expensive. But then that only impacts negatively the really heavy alcohol user because if you're if you just have a couple of beers at a weekend that's not going to increase that much in price but if you're consuming two bottles of whiskey a day that's really going to cost you way more so i think in in terms of regulation there's a lot to be done there
0: All right. Well, Dr. Amir England, thank you for sharing your knowledge and I hope to talk to you again at some point. Pleasure.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: This episode is supported in part by The Amino Company. They specialize in making science-backed amino acid products that you can mix into any drink. Their products contain a mixture of essential amino acids, the building blocks of proteins in the body, as well as other nutrients including minerals like iron and electrolytes like potassium. Your body is constantly repairing damage and your muscles and tissues need the right mix of amino acids and nutrients to do this effectively. One thing I like about Amino Co. is they actually conduct clinical trials to determine what their products really do. They have a variety of formulations and for different purposes, and my personal favorite is one called Heal, which has been shown to be three times more efficient at triggering muscle growth and repair than other protein sources. It helps maintain healthy inflammation levels and preserve muscle mass during periods of inactivity. I mix this product into the water bottle I bring to the gym and consume it before, during, and after my workouts, and I have felt a noticeable difference in my performance during those workouts and my recovery times from soreness and fatigue afterwards. Their products are keto friendly, soy free, vegetarian or vegan, gluten free, and non GMO, so they are compatible with almost any diet or lifestyle. You can support the podcast and try Heal or any of their other products by using the discount code MIND when you visit aminoco.com/mind. You will get 30% off your purchase. If you work out regularly or do intensive exercise, I recommend trying Aminoco's products. I get a lot of companies reaching out to me about advertising and I only end up using and liking a small percentage of the products that I see, so check out aminoco.com/mind and use the code MIND to try these products today for 30% off.